Hello everyone and welcome to episode two of Kez Publica. Uh, today, uh, I, myself, Mr. Burns and, and Mr. Fini will be uh, discussing tragedy uh, in ancient Greece, which is very exciting. It's uh, one of the great topics, of course, of classics. So, uh, Mr. Fini, I have got some questions for you. Are you ready for these questions? I was born ready. Let's do it. Okay, right. Um, so obviously tragedy is a, uh, is, a, is a form of drama, isn't it? And we're talking mm. about uh, ancient Greece here. What, first of all, just to, if you could set the scene for everybody, Mr. Feeney, what time period roughly are you going to be talking about in terms of drama? In terms of the beginnings of Greek drama, um, we're talking the very end of the 6th century BC and into the 5th century BC. It is... Um, uh, almost a simultaneous beginning with that of the beginning of democracy in ancient Athens. So we're talking around 510, 500 BC, all the way down to roughly 400 BC. Yeah, and I think the link to uh, democracy is going to be one that's going to come up, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah, no, it is very, very important. And where are we talking about? So we've got our time period, we're, we're orientated in time, let's orientate ourselves in space. Yeah, so people often talk about um, ancient Greek tragedy just as that ancient Greek tragedy but it is more specific than that theatre drama is not just a Greek invention it is an Athenian invention so we are talking quite specifically about Athens um, north of the Peloponnese in ancient Greece and um, the development of theatre arises in that particular location and it's worth really emphasising I think isn't it that theatre drama it, it doesn't exist before this. No, no. It, it, it doesn't exist. I mean, it's one yeah. of those things that is so fundamental mm -hmm. to our experience of the world that it's, it's really easy to forget that someone had to invent drama. Yeah, and it seems to be almost this instantaneous thing. It wasn't there, and then all of a sudden it just seems to arise out of nothing. It is extraordinary. I wonder if we'll come back to this at some point, but I think in the very early days of Greek theatre, it must have been quite a disorientating experience for both the actors and the audience and the viewers, I think. Yeah, and I think this as well, you know, when we, when we think, of, okay, drama doesn't exist before this, it's worth thinking about everything that comes from drama, everything that couldn't exist without drama, because really what we're talking about here is mimesis, isn't it? It's imitation, mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. using the body it's the taking on of a, of, a, of a different persona to tell a story. Physically, yeah. you're embodying something. and you, know, you couldn't have Netflix without that. Yeah, I know, absolutely. And um, all of uh, much of modern culture without that as well. It seems such a basic thing to us that obviously, you know, children in their innocence uh, make believe and play different characters and think nothing of it. But for a grown adult or an older person to do it seriously in, in front of an audience is something quite new and quite extraordinary, really. I mean, that's so interesting as well, isn't it? Yeah. The link to the idea of play with children, because mm -hmm. we call it a play, don't we? It, yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, obviously to mammals, play is an absolutely key part of how we learn to engage with the world. It's how we learn to engage with other mammals absolutely. cooperatively and also antagonistically. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, is drama adult 
play? Are we learning something? Are we engaging with the world in a profound level by doing this activity? I think we're probably both quite biased when it comes to this because we both love this subject and love um, everything that classics has to offer. So I think both of us would agree that uh, the Greeks <laughs> are definitely learning something from um, the tragedies and the plays that they put on. Um, I, I certainly believe so. Yes. Mm, a very interesting question to which we will come back. Okay, well, yeah. I've got some um, I've got some specific questions for you then, Mr. Okay. Lee, given yeah. that uh, we've, we've hopefully set ourselves um, up in terms of what we're talking about and when. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, we've already said how profound this topic is going to be, you know, mm-hmm. not, to, not to blow our own trumpets there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but, um, <laughs> so uh, my first question, fittingly, um, for such a serious topic is, what does tragedy have to do with goats? Yeah, now that might sound like an insane question, but there is something in there. So the word tragedy comes from two Greek words, this noun tragos, which is the Greek word for a goat, and also the word oide, which means a song. So tragedy, believe it or not, literally means a goat song. And people have been trying to figure out for hundreds of years what on earth that those things isn't it that's yeah. like, what? <laughs> um, there are a couple of different theories I mean some people think that um, drama originated um, likely um, out of choral dances in honor of Dionysus the god of theater or the gods the Greeks put in charge of theater when yeah they we'll, have a, we'll have a lot yeah. to say about uh, him exactly yeah. yeah and so some people think that um, goats might have been um, offered as a sacrifice in these original choral dances to Dionysus some people think that a goat might have been the animal around which um, the chorus or the um, the people singing and dancing would have danced around um, Satyrs are common in the worship of Dionysus in the Greek imagination, these half men, half goat figures. So maybe the original, in the very early days of Greek drama, um, people might have been dressing up in goat skins um, well, they, to imitate satyrs. Um, at, at the festival in which tragedies were originally staged, mm. they always finished with a a, um, a satyr play, didn't they? A, a comedy, is that right? Um, yeah, so over the... Uh, over the the course of the city Dionysia, the um, annual drama festival, over three days, um, each day would have started with three tragedies and then a satyr play mm. um, for a bit of light relief after all the blood and gore and um, tragedy that you've seen in the morning and well, then you have a comedy afterwards. That's one explanation, isn't it? I suppose what, I, what yeah. I'm hinting at is that perhaps there is a there is a more fundamental link there between the, the, the satyrs and the, mm. and, the, and the tragedy because of course yeah. satyrs are, according to at least one interpretation, half man, half goat. Yeah. Um, so maybe there is a link there. I mean, what I like is the idea that, you know, satyr represents the the unbridling the, of, of passions, yeah. you know, the, the release yeah. of all that is repressed um, within within the individual, and, absolutely, and the, the, you know there is a there is a psychological link there mm-hmm. um, between what is going on in tragedy. You know what mm-hmm. what is going on, and you know we can talk about catharsis, but mm-hmm. but uh, you know it's, this is this is all you know red meat to a modern person who's into psychoanalysis and that sort of thing. Absolutely, I think um, uh, the the whole cult of Dionysus, um, the worship of him, is obsessed and really concerned with the idea of being taken out of yourself and behaving in a way you wouldn't normally. And I think you're right, satyrs embody that kind of idea. Dionysus is known as um, the uh, Dionysus the Liberator. He is the guy mm. who takes you out of yourself and frees you up and loosens you up and allows you to behave in a 
in a different kind of way. One of the few gods who seems to have offered <clears throat> some sense of female emancipation and release as well. Yeah, at the main ants, the back ants, who mm. are uh, so prominent in the worship of Dionysus, they behave in a way that women could not even conceive of um, in their own society in Athens, where women are so bound up and kept at home. Women in the cult of Dionysus break free, they go into the woods, and um, it tells you a lot about the Greek imagination, about uh, what they consider the women to do when they you know, when they break free out of the home. It does, yes. We're going to too much detail. Yeah. Um, but they, 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 there is a form of sort of mimesis even in that celebration, isn't there? Because mm. they, don't they, they dress up as animals. Yes, they do. And um, engage in snake handling and do many um, uh, very peculiar acts. You know? Yeah. And so is that the female equivalent of, of drama in Athens? <sighs> it's... It's difficult to say. I mean, I'm, um, I'm thinking of something that Aristotle said in his Poetics, talking about mimesis, which means imitation in, yeah. in English, where he says, um, tragedy is the imitation of an action. Mm. And the whole point of drama, the word drama actually comes from this Greek verb, dran, that means to do something. So drama is all about doing something. It is all about action, what people are doing. And mm. I suppose... In that regard, what these women are getting up to in the cult of Dionysus, actually engaging in these um, pretty mysterious and yeah. uh, funny acts, and actually doing something, is um, is is linked to is linked to that idea of drama. Yeah, I mean, I, I just it's just a thought that that struck me there really because I think that you know when you're thinking about drama and what it means and what it is and, mm. and what is going on in tragedy, you have to really pay attention to the link with Dionysus. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, drama originates out of um, the cults associated with his worship. So he's always there at the center of it. And satyrs, yeah. of course, are also at the center of the imagery that we have from the ancient world um, mm. where Dionysus is concerned. So, you know, there is this kind of nexus of symbolic imagery well we think of it as symbolic imagery of course mm. so it's, it's an interesting question as to whether yeah. an ancient would think of it as symbolic in quite the same way mm -hmm. um, but but we think of it as symbolic imagery so there is as I say there is this these linked series of concepts and images that are going mm -hmm. on here that I think it is really interesting to, to pay attention to mm -hmm. and I, I do want I do think we should also pay attention to the idea of you know the the the, 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 the split between men and women as well mm. um, maybe that brings us on quite nicely then to my... So the answer is that tragedy has something to do with goats. And yes, it, 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 it has something yeah. to do with the goat that's inside all of us, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. perhaps. <laughs> we all have it lurking in there. Yeah, somewhere. some of the yeah. goat, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so that's something uh, to, to think about. Mm. Um, what would your goat be called? Oh, Peter man. the goat? Yeah, I mean, that's a bit, <laughs> that's a bit too obvious, isn't it? Yeah. What would yours be? I don't know. Um, yeah. Go, Gertrude, I don't know, Billy uh, or something. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, so that brings us on then to my next question. I think quite right. nicely, which mm. is that the question of whether tragedy is universal or whether it is Athenian. That's an amazing question, and uh, my immediate reaction to this question is: it is fifty-fifty. It's both. Because you can't get away from the fact that ancient drama was um, produced and arose at a very particular time and very particular place, and there are 
traditions associated with ancient Greek drama that are very, very, very unique and that we don't see much of anymore in our modern day. When we think of going to the theatre now to see a play, often it is in the evening, it is indoors, the theatre will have maybe a thousand, maybe a thousand and a half people or something in there. And you know, you're very quiet and you turn around and hush and glare at people if they're talking or on their phones or whatever. Back in the ancient world, it is all in the daytime. The theatres are in the open air. Um, the dramas are put on as part of a religious festival celebrating Dionysus, the god of theatre. Um, there are perhaps fifteen to 20,000 people in these theatres and the very, very big ones that have survived. And all the people that you see in front of you on the stage, they might be playing female characters, but all of them are men. Yeah. Women are not acting. They are wearing these very scary looking masks. Very, And if you've never seen a picture of um, an ancient Greek theater mask, um, you will be quite taken aback when you do see a picture of them. They are very freaky looking and they yeah. are very scary. And um, there's a lot, that, and also ancient Greek drama is more like a modern opera to us. There's a lot of dancing, there's a lot of music. Well, there's a reason for that as well, isn't it? The opera, yeah. in, a, in a way, is the self-conscious resurrection of ancient Greek drama. It is, kind of, yeah. You like know, Wagner, yeah, and his Beirut yeah. festival, is very much trying to be a Greek. Yeah, exactly, and it's very much a mix of the spoken words and prose and verse and music all mixed together. So, in all of those regards, ancient Greek drama is very, very, very unique, and uh, I think it's also worth mentioning at this point the link that it had to the Athenian democracy that arose at yeah. the same time. So I think that uh, I think it's really worth uh, uh, emphasising as well before we go into that really interesting mm. stuff that you're about to go into that mm. these the plays that we have that mm-hmm. have come down to us were written to be performed once. Yes. As yes. part of a competition mm-hmm. that really can be conceived of actually as a, as, a, as an act of worship. Yeah. It, it, much. It's not like a play today that is mm. written in order to go on tour and be seen by lots of people in lots of different times and places. Yeah. It's written to be performed once, to win a prize, mm-hmm. very important, yeah. as we were about to talk about democracy, yeah. um, and in a, in a religious festival as an act of worship. And, mm-hmm. and in that sense, it's a bit like athletic games. They are also in, in that, you know. So, so you know, it's, it's, it's really, really different. It is a mm-hmm. one off experience yeah. for, for, for a group of people at a particular time in a particular place. Yeah, and also, we should say, in a particular theatre, the yeah. theatre of Dionysus at the base of the Acropolis. But it, it is extraordinary. Like, people regard these plays that have survived from ancient Greece from ancient Greece as classics that are performed all the time. I think Aeschylus and Sophocles and Euripides and the other tragedians would be amazed if they knew that people were still performing their plays today. They would not believe this. Yeah. It, it's it's incredible to think of that. And it is important that you brought up the idea of competition. The ancient Greeks turned everything into a competition. You could just you couldn't just play sport, you had to have the Olympics. You couldn't just put on plays, you had to make a part of the competition for the city Dionysia. Um, it's 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 extraordinary, really. Yeah, they 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 you know a lot of their meaning in a sense mm. is in that competitive context. Yeah, um, because the gods want to see competitions. In yeah, that's what the gods want. Exactly, and um, and also it's it's quite nice to think that at the first day of the festival, 
um, the cult statue of Dionysus would be brought from his temple and processed into the theatre and put in the front row so he could have a you know a good view and enjoy yeah. all of the plays yeah. and um, it's 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 amazing to think that um, that the guys performing these plays would have seen Dionysus literally just there sort of looking at them. Yeah, and he is there to liberate you. Yeah, You know, he is there, he is the liberator and he's in the theatre. Yeah, literally there with you. It's it's just amazing. I think the the link with democracy though is very, very key to these plays and it's something that is quite easy to overlook when you see them performed now. I'm trying to think of an example that... um, that illustrates this. Um, I'm thinking of a play by Euripides um, called The Trojan Women. Mm-hmm. So, um, in 431 BC, um, the Peloponnesian War began and it was to last a long, long, long time 27 years in this all. This is the um, war between Sparta and Athens that That's was extremely it. long and extremely nasty. Yeah, um, and exactly. Which that. Ultimately, Athens loses. Yeah, to Sparta when Sparta realizes that it can beat Athens if it builds a navy. Um, yeah. But in 416 BC, um, Athens decided to. Um, completely devastates um, the island of Milos, one of its allies he wanted out of the war. They went over to Milos, they killed all the men, and they put all the women and children into slavery. It was an absolute catastrophe, all because Milos wanted out. And the following year, Euripides puts on a play called The Trojan Woman, and The Trojan Woman imagines the day after the sack of Troy. So all the Trojan women are there, all the men have been killed, and all the women are there, and they are being divided up and given as slaves to the Greek heroes who are going to be taken back to Greece. Euripides, on some level, I believe, is making a comment about what Athens had done to Milos the year before. This is what happens when you completely devastate a land and its people, and these are the real life human consequences of the actions that you have decided to take. So the choice that the Athenian democracy made the year before in terms of what it was going to do to Milos, um, Euripides puts on stage in front of everyone's in you know, in everyone's view yeah. the following year. So what is going on there? You know, that is the question, isn't it? That is Mm. the fascinating question. It seems completely implausible to argue that there Mm. isn't a link between the political events there Mm -hmm. and what uh, Euripides has has decided to to put on stage. Yeah. Um, So what is the function of doing so? What are his intentions? What are the experiences of the people in the theatre, mm. and what function is this serving on a on a social level? I think um, I think Euripides is trying, in that play at any rate, to give his audience a reminder of what the real life consequences can be of a catastrophe like. The Trojan War because it is applicable to real life. And so you think that he is making an explicit moral comment? I, on... be- I believe so, yes, mm. I believe so. I think there are other there are other plays that are that are slightly more um, general in their approach. Um, so for example, the earliest um, Greek tragedy that we have that survives from 472 BC is a play called The Persians, mm. uh, written by Aeschylus. Um, and
And the Persians is a very peculiar Greek tragedy because most Greek tragedies concern themselves with myth and the world of the gods. Yeah. The Persians actually references a real-life event, the Battle of Salamis, that had taken place eight years earlier in 480 BC. And it's quite amazing to think that a lot of the members of the audience who would have seen the Persians in 472 BC would have been people who would have fought in the battle eight years previously. Yeah. And... Um, in that play, um, it imagines the day after the Battle of Salamis where the Persians hear about their defeat at the hands of the Greeks and they completely fall to pieces because they thought there's no way that we're going to lose this battle, mm. but then they do and the play explores their reaction to their loss. And what Aeschylus, I think, is trying to instruct or tell his audience in that play is giving a message to the Greeks. What happened to the Persians? Pride came before a fall. Mm. You got too above yourselves and look what happened. You blew it mm. and look what happened to you. Now, Athens, you won this battle, but be careful. You could suffer the same fate as the Persians if you get too above yourself. So there's a lesson in hubris yeah. going on there. And, and again, because Athens is being governed by a democracy at this time, it is... Um, quite important for the collective members of the audience to think about um, this idea of not getting too above yourself and not going too high. Yeah, interesting. I think that here we need to bring in the, the elephant in the room that we haven't discussed yet, which okay. is this word catharsis. Yes. Now, see, what I would... I'm going to make a very brave reach here and, yeah. and try and link to the uh, to, to one of our A-levels, or um, mm. two of our A-levels, actually. Yeah. I mm-hmm. want to think about the end of the Aeneid. Okay. Um, where Turnus, mm-hmm. as many of our listeners will know, is mm-hmm. killed in an act of furor, in an act of anger mm-hmm. by the hero Aeneas. Mm-hmm. And this is a very morally ambivalent ending yes. for modern readers, at mm-hmm. least. Now, many people think that Virgil is making an explicit moral comment mm. with this. Um, and many people think that he's making an explicit moral comment with the Aeneid itself mm-hmm. about imperialism. Augustus, mm-hmm. um, you know, what, what have you. Mm-hmm. I personally don't think that that is quite what is going on. Okay. I think it is much more to do with the catharsis of um, traumatic experience. Okay. Now, I think, I suspect that that is also what is going on um, with uh, the, um, the Trojan woman. Mm-hmm. I think that just as Rome had gone through almost a century of traumatic civil war Mm -hmm. and those psychological wounds needed catharsis, Mm -hmm. i.e., well, lots of different translations of that word. Purification, uh, release. We'll talk about the the possible definition of this word. Um, Just as the the Romans required that, Mm -hmm. uh, I think that that might be what collectively the democracy required Mm -hmm. um, after what it did to the island. Um, mm-hmm. of, of Milos yeah, and, and, yeah. and I think that you can because we have a tendency I know I talked in, the, in, in episode one about uh, you know, banging on about Christianity or post-Christian mindset but we yes. have a tendency as Christians or post-Christians people who have grown up in a, in, in a society whose fundamental um, symbolic and moral architecture is Christian mm-hmm. we have a tendency to think of things in terms of right and wrong mm-hmm. um, because of course in our uh, moral universe there is ultimately a, an ultimate source of good mm-hmm. um, and and everything you know your moral compass can align with that or it can it can be misaligned with that so mm-hmm. in other words things are right or they are wrong 
Um, and even as post-Christians, even if you are not a Christian, you, you still probably um, mm-hmm. will be in that kind of mindset. Things are yeah. right or they are wrong. Yeah. Um, and I don't think the ancients thought like that. I agree with you. I think the Greeks seem to have this idea that the gods are part of the world, but they didn't make the world for humans. We just happen to exist in the world, but they don't have any moral obligation towards us or anything. Yeah, and I think that, you know you can see it in the fact that nobody, as far as I know, perhaps you'll correct me, nobody in the ancient world ever questions the morality of, for example, slavery. No, it was just an accepted part of life. It doesn't yeah. even doesn't even enter their heads to question whether it's right or wrong. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's 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 actually more like it's a more disturbing thing that's going on with the Trojan women, mm-hmm. which is that a really shocking thing has happened, mm-hmm. and they themselves, the democracy, have done that shocking thing. Yeah. And what the function that the play is performing on a psychosocial level mm-hmm. is that of catharsis. Now, it, it is not condemning what's happened. Mm-hmm. It is helping them cope with what has happened. So you gave a definition, Mr. Burns, earlier of catharsis. You said mm. um, purification, I yeah. believe. Um, what are some other definitions of that word, do you think? The classic definition that you'll probably hear in your English A-level is that it is a release. It's a mm. release of pent-up emotion. Yeah. yeah. Now... The problem with this definition mm-hmm. is that it is Freudian. Yeah, Freud, uh, the father of psychoanalysis, mm-hmm. um, is writing in the, the late 19th century where the premier technology, really, of the day mm-hmm. is the steam engine. Yeah, The premier technology of the day is always what is used as the analogy or metaphor for mm-hmm. the mind, always. Yeah. So hence we have the, the, the idioms, you know, let off steam, mm-hmm. um, I'm under pressure, yeah, yeah. Um, all of these things. All of these things are 19th century metaphors for, um, for, for what's going on psychologically in the mind. Yeah. And uh, this, this hydraulic metaphor mm-hmm. um, that, that pressure gets built up in the mind and it needs to be released in the same way that pressure builds up in a steam engine and needs to be released, you know, when the train mm. goes choo and all yeah. the steam comes out. <laughs> um, is, uh, that, is, that is Freudian mm-hmm. uh, and, it, and it's, it's, it's Victorian. Yeah. Um, it is not ancient Greek. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were talking to Dr. Griselia and uh, she was uh, mm. giving us some, some wise words about how the, the, the verb um, in Greek is actually about burning. Yes, the, it is. The, yeah. the, uh, the root word for mm. catharsis is about fire. Mm-hmm. Now, I think that the relevant technology that is being used as a metaphor here is mm. metallurgical. Mm-hmm. And when you are making a you know, some, some armor or a piece of metallurgy, something that's made of metal, you have to burn out the impurities mm-hmm. in the metal in order yeah. to be able to use it properly. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, is what the, the relevant uh, meaning here is of catharsis. I'm not the yeah. first person to say this, by the mm-hmm. way. I'm, yeah. I'm, uh, these other scholars have pointed this out. And mm-hmm. this, is, this just happens to be the interpretation that, that I think is right. Yeah, and I see your point of view. It, it seems that... Um, according to you, the ancient Greek idea of catharsis is a little bit more, um, maybe subtle isn't the right word, but it's a bit more... Well, what it is, yeah. it's not to provide, um, it's not to provide people with an emotional release. Mm-hmm. It is to strengthen 
Mm-hmm. the mind in the yeah. same way that metal is strengthened by the process of tempering mm-hmm. so I know that I'm being a bit inconsistent here because I have talked about you know Dionysus the liberator and, and the idea yeah. of release and the idea of releasing the, the, mm. the or healing the, the scars but I, I, perhaps I've been a little bit imprecise in my language what I mm. really mean is that I think that what's going on when they're looking at this play, the, the Trojan women, mm. is that the impurities that have come into the body politic as a mm-hmm. result of this shocking action have to yeah. be have to be burned out mm-hmm. by a collective experience of yeah. the same thing, but at a distance. Yeah, you know, you're in it, but you're removed from it. You you can observe it, but you can also you're also separate from it, and that is that amazing thing that drama provides. Yeah, and I I want to link this back actually to uh, your question about fifteen minutes ago: is tragedy, drama, Athenian or universal? Mm. I think yes, it is certainly Athenian because it was produced in a particular time and place, and it has many um, interesting traditions associated with it that we don't really subscribe to anymore. But the themes and the ideas and the emotions that people feel when they read and watch these plays are totally universal. Yeah. That, that why on earth would people still read them now if they didn't resonate yeah. to some degree or another? And I think people can read a play like The Trojan Woman and still make links to their own lives from what they gain out of it. Do you think that people who have grown up in a totalitarian society, i.e. not a democracy, mm. not a, a society that doesn't have the concepts, the shared classical mm. heritage that, mm. that we do in the West, do you think it would experience this in the same way? I believe so, yes. Even a few years ago, I think, there was a production of The Trojan Woman that was put on by a group of Syrian refugees mm. who had come to the UK, had managed to escape. Um, because the idea of your homeland being completely destroyed and taken over and having to somehow find a new way as a result of that mm. is something that anyone at any time I think will be able to relate to. I think that's a, that's a fascinating um, example. Yeah. I, I, I would argue though that Syrians share our classical heritage. You know, they're, they're, they're mm. in Syria is very much part of the for example well, the, the Greco-Roman the, world yeah yes. the Greco-Roman world the Hellenistic world I mean yeah. you know I, I, I wonder I'm, I'm slightly more possibly bleak than you are Mr. Fini mm. I wonder whether somebody who's from a completely different mm-hmm. cultural tradition would experience in the same way you know would a would an uh, um, somebody from uh, what we think of as the Aztec Empire, who, who mm. you know worships Chipitotec and, and you mm. know who thinks that you need to sacrifice, you know, do human sacrifices mm. in order to keep the sun rising in the morning, would they mm. experience it in the same way? I don't know. I just I don't think we can assume that they would. Yeah, I think it's a, I think it's an interesting I think it's an interesting thought. I'm not entirely convinced. I'm not so much thinking now of tragedy. I'm thinking more of comedy, and in particular, this comedy by Aristophanes called. Um, Lysistrata, mm. which focuses again, it said during the Peloponnesian War, and it focuses on this woman who gets a band of women together who go on a sex strike to try and end the war. So they deny sex to their husbands who are fighting in the war until they make peace with each other. Yeah. That play has been restaged in places as far away from here, such as Cambodia and Vietnam. And women in those countries have actually gone on sex strikes of their own in order to try and stop a conflict. Um, yeah. So I think <laughs> I suppose there's some very, some very universal themes. Yeah, <laughs> something, something, yeah. some things never die. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> um, well, okay. Yes, I take your point. Um, I take your point. I wonder though whether it is. I, I suspect that there are 
certain tragedies that um, we experience in a certain way because there is, however tenuous, some cultural link mm-hmm. to the society that wrote them. I think you're right, and I think that's certainly true in our society now. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm not entirely sure about um, how these tragedies would go in a, in a completely different political system, but I think there is something universal in these plays that really does speak to people. Well, I would agree with that. I mean, they're, yeah. they're definitely, these, you know, this is great. We are talking about human art of the absolute top tier here. You know, there is, there is yeah. no human artistic creation that uh, these tragedies need to feel sort of inadequate in front of. They're in the Premier League. I, I mean, potentially maybe second to Homer, but I think after... Yeah, <laughs> I, 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 after, I think... Yeah. But, you know, I mean, of course, Homer is, is there lurking in the background of tragedies, isn't he? Oh, yeah, all the time. All um, the time. And as Aristotle yeah. points out in, in his Poetics, you know, this is... I would strongly recommend, by the way, if you're, if you're listening to this, to read Aristotle's Poetics. It's very mm. short, it's extremely accessible, and you will be blown away by how sophisticated it is. It is kind of like reading a piece of modern aesthetic. Yeah, yes. philosophy, and you know, it, it all so many of the concepts that you, that you will be using in in your literature classes, mm. whether you're studying whatever language you're studying, are, mm. are there in the poetics, and and yeah. um, and he is quite clear that Homer is very much um, lurking in the background of, of mm-hmm. tragedy. Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely, it's is. to do with the complete action, mm-hmm. the you know the. The, the the fatal flaw of Marty. All all of this kind of stuff is is, is all there. And Absolutely. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, we would we would strongly strongly recommend um, that 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 you read that. Um, so we talked about what catharsis means. What I would really like, actually, Mister mm. Feeney, is if uh, yeah. we could just talk about just just before we leave the topic of um, uh, was tragedy Athenian. It's worth just running through some of the rituals that were performed before the plays were performed. Ah, yes. Because yeah. I think that this might surprise people, and, and it, it does really emphasise how um, alien, actually, the original context of these plays is. Absolutely. So, obviously, the city Dionysia um, is a religious festival in honour of Dionysus. Um, it is a cultural festival, but it is also international. It happens at the end of March, beginning of April every year when the sailing season starts up again so people from outside Athens can come to Athens to watch these plays. What are those months in uh, ancient Greek? Um, I do know this. I think yeah. the month is Elaphobolion, I oh, think wow. it's called. But, um, Guys, he did, he did uh, Homer in Homeric Greek last podcast, and now he's going to flex again. What, yeah, what's the other one then? Uh, dropping truth bombs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I think that's it. But yeah, um, yeah there would be a massive commos, uh, this big procession through the streets of Athens leading up to the Theatre of Dionysus. Once everyone was sat down in the Theatre of Dionysus, and we're talking roughly 15,000 people or so, yeah. and there's many people, um, before the plays even began, there would be a number of, as you said, certain uh, uh, <laughs> processions and other things that are very alien to us now. So. Athens in the 5th century BC was beginning to um, grow its empire and it was getting tribute and treasure from many smaller city-states all over the Greek world. It would parade all the tribute that had been paid to Athens over the past year. And it was interesting to think that there would have been people 
sitting in the audience who had come from those city-states who had paid all that tribute and now they're yeah. watching it being um, uh, paraded around in front of them. And the Athenians are watching them watch it. Yes. So if you're Athenian, a very perhaps satisfying... Yeah, I mean, again, a lot of all of the a lot of all of this um, activity is designed to show off the greatness of Athens in many ways. Yeah. Um, another, and you're covered um, in pig's blood at the time. Uh, yes, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> um, we'll, maybe not uh, we'll delve on yeah. that. But yeah. um, the other, um, the other uh, processions that would happen, they would parade the young men or the young boys in armor whose parents had died fighting for Athens the previous year. So. Um, the state of Athens would have taken on the responsibility of bringing them up and then they parade them in front of the audience. Um, they would make a sacrifice to Dionysus on the altar that was in the middle of the orchestra, the circular space yeah. where the um, chorus sang and danced. Where we get the word orchestra from. Yeah, the orchestra comes from yeah. that word. Um, and that was the pigs, isn't it? The pigs, uh, the the yes, pigs. yeah. yeah the, um, so the altar would be covered in blood and um, all of that. Like and I believe stuff, the, yeah. the blood was actually sprinkled around the theatre. Yes, and um, it's also it's important to note as well that um, the seating in the theatre is very specific. So you have these. Um, sort of wedges in the theatre where people from the particular deems that call, but the particular areas of Attica would sit and um, and right in the front row you would have the magistrates magistrates and the most important people in Athens and they have then and if you go to the theatre of Dionysus now in Athens you can still see the remains of some of these seats and some of them have uh, the names carved into them of who sat in that particular seat kind of like um, you know, Brad Pitt on a movie set yeah. with a chair with his name on it. There's one seat that says Hierius Hephaestu, the priest of Hephaestus. So that's a special seat in the front row. Yeah. Um, so yeah, before the plays even began, you would have a number of um, different activities that would happen, um, essentially to show off Athens' greatness, Athens' prosperity. Yeah. So the um, city, the city is arranged in miniature in the theatre. Yeah. It's it's organised in the theatre in the way that it is organised. As a, as a city. Yeah, it is kind of a reflection of the city itself. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. a microcosm. Mm -hmm. um, and, it's, and, you know, imagine going to the theatre and, and before anything starts, a, a live pig is slaughtered, drained of its blood, and the blood is sprinkled around. Mm -hmm. This is a very, very alien yeah, and uh, society. <laughs> <laughs> um, Absolutely and, right. And, and, yeah. and that 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 sprinkling marks it out. It it, it demarcates the theatre as a sacred space. Yeah, um, it's reinforcing the social structure of the theatre. Yeah. Really, I mean, also it might be worth saying at this point as well that obviously we we talked to, we mentioned earlier that women didn't act in these plays. There are many, many, many very prominent female characters in Greek tragedy. They were all played by men or young boys. Yeah. Um, but we still don't know for certain, 100% certain, if at this time in the 5th century BC if women were in the audience or yeah. not. And, and it does alter your reading of the plays um, yeah. depending on uh, whether you think women were present or not. Well, and you know, things like the Bacchae. Yeah, yeah. And to, 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 yeah. to link, you know, the Bacchae is a, is a, a play by um, uh, Euripides, uh, mm. who, where, you know, we, we see the worshippers, the female worshippers of Dionysus, mm -hmm. um, getting up to, uh, wow, all kinds of scary, mm -hmm. um, yeah. interesting things. And yes. so I want to link then back to what I was saying mm. um, uh, a little while ago, that, I, I mean, I wonder whether 
you know, the, the ultimate reality of what's going on here is, is, is all to do with Dionysus. And is, the, is drama a kind of male Dionysian worship, whereas the, the ceremonies up in the woods is a female one, I don't know. I think the men have a much more prominent um, uh, outward role in Athens than women do, of course. So, you know, it is appropriate for men to be out and visible. It yeah. is appropriate, the Athenians think, to be either stuck at home, out of sight, or if they are out of the home on their own, you know, to be in the woods, you know, out of the city. You know, yeah. it, is a, it is a rural... Um, worship and the weird and strange practices they indulge in all take place in the woods away from the city. Yeah. I think it, I think it gives you a bit of an insight into Greek male anxiety. About well, I mean, stuff. I think that um, we're, perhaps we're guilty because we're yeah. saying that the you know the weird stuff is happening in the woods. Arguably, the weird stuff is happening in the theatre, isn't yeah. it? That's well, where the weird stuff. Yes, yeah, but, yeah. but again, as you were saying, though, Mr. Burns, there is a bit of a distance. Part of the power of tragedy is that you, as the audience, are kind of removed from what you're seeing, so it does allow you to put a little True. bit of distance between you. It also links to something Aristotle says in the Poetics, that tragedy is all about arousing pity and fear. Mm. And it allows you to link what you are seeing in front of you on the stage back into your own lives and to think about what would I do if I were in this position. But also kind of process the emotion. Yes. You know, yeah. kind of work through it. So that the, afterwards... The catharsis, as yeah, the catharsis. Yeah, the catharsis. Um, okay, well, we've um, we've already talked for 40 minutes, Mr. Fien. I, I mean, I wanted to ask you about should mm. the Iliad be counted as a tragedy and what about the Aeneid? Do you have some brief mm. thoughts on that? Um, the Iliad most definitely is a tragedy. Oh, but is it though? Because it's, yes, it's, it but it's written down, it's not performed, it doesn't have pig's blood sprinkled, it doesn't have the, the parade of the, the orphans, it doesn't have the, the democratic context, it doesn't have the city arrayed in microcosm, it's not an act of worship. Like, no. what, what, you know, is it? Or is it, because I think it's a tragedy for us yeah. because we read the Iliad and we also read the plays. So the, the difference between them dissolves. Yes, I, and I understand all of that, but I think even an ancient Greek would um, agree that there is a tragic element in Homer, because the one thing that links all Greek tragedies together, at some point, a character is going to be in a moment of crisis, yeah. crisis. Mm. In Eng it's a Greek word, but in English it means choice yeah. or judgment. At some point in every Greek tragedy, a character is going to be on the stage and they are going to say, Tidrazo, what am I going to do? Mm. What shall I do? Again, it's about action. It's about making a choice about what they are going to do. And Achilles in the Iliad is yeah. that person who yep. has to make that choice. What mm. is he going to do? And also the suffering that everyone encounters in tragedy. It is like something physical that they are passing from one person to the next. And what does Achilles do in the Iliads? That suffering and that grief that he has inside and that anger infects everyone he comes into contact with. Mm. And I think in that regard, um, the Iliad can most certainly be counted as a tragedy. It has tragic elements in it, and it has a tragic narrative. Well, and Aristotle is 100% in your corner there, Mr. Feeney. Yes, uh, he is. He is 100% in your corner, because he sees that the tragedians have taken... Mm -hmm. all that is good about tragedy mm -hmm. from Homer. Yeah, absolutely right. Um, yeah. So I, I think that, you know, I, I will have to, I will have to go and, uh, I'll go and have to go and reflect on that, but uh, I, how can I argue against such an eloquent case? Um, what about the Aeneid then? <laughs> what about the Aeneid? Yeah, the Aeneid I think is 
is more ambiguous. I think there are definitely elements of tragedy in it. Book four of the Aeneas, mm. um, the whole saga of Dido, is kind of its own mini yeah, Greek tragedy. Definitely. Um, yeah. I and think, there's lots of intertextual yeah. reference there, isn't there? I mean, we, yeah. can, we can be pretty sure that Virgil himself is thinking about this as a tragedy oh, because absolutely. there are so yeah. many references to tragedies in book four. Yeah, right? and there's lots of references to um, Aristotle and the Poetics yeah. uh, throughout the Aeneid as well. Um, I think the tragedy, or the Aeneas in total, is it a tragedy? I'm not so sure, but there are definitely elements of tragedy in it, definitely. It's much more complicated, isn't it? Because yeah. the Aeneid is trying to be several things at once. You know, it's, yeah. it's trying to be the Iliad, it's trying to be the Odyssey, it's trying to be a Roman national epic, it's trying to be tragedy, it's trying to be, you know, there's all kinds yeah, of and things. Yeah, I, and I do think Virgil succeeds, you know, very, very admirably on, yes. on all those counts, <laughs> but... Um, it's not quite yeah. as unified, is it? It's not really, it doesn't have that sense of the complete action in the same way that the Iliad does. Yeah, and that the Greek tragedies do. Yeah. Um, I, I would agree with you there. In, in a sense, but... it's more like two actions, isn't it? Which mm -hmm. is, of course, the way it is deliberately structured. Yeah, and Virgil's very conscious of that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Good. Okay, well, there's definitely more to discuss there, but we'll, we'll have to leave it there. Yeah. Um, very quickly then, mm. we've got a couple of student questions. Okay, um, I want to hear these. Yeah, um, so Megan in year 12, friend of the show, um, wants to know if we could live in a city-state in the ancient world, which one would we choose? <sighs> when and man. why? Which one? When and why? That's such a brilliant question, I love this. Um, have you got an idea about this? What do you think? <sighs> I don't know. I, I, I'm trying to think of a, w of a way of answering this that isn't deeply problematic because of course the morality, the moral Mm. the ethics of the ancient world is so different and you know if mm. I say well I'd love to be I'd love to be an elite ro or I'd love to be a rich Athenian what mm. I'm saying is that I would love to be you know I would love to own slaves and I would love to mm -hmm. you know sacrifice animals and I would love to you know want to have I want to want to you mm. know devastate islands that want to leave my alliance yeah, and, you know, yeah, and, and yeah. you know would I want to to be involved in all of those things ethically well as a, as me no of course I wouldn't yeah so but, it's, but would I want to be a poor person in that no yeah, I absolutely or, wouldn't or a slave, yeah, or a slave know, no, yeah. no um or even you know in, in some places in ancient Greece and ancient Rome would you want to be a woman of a certain class no, I mean no. um very likely not I mean yeah. I have to say, I've always been fascinated by the city of Carthage, Yeah. Um, because before the Romans completely obliterated it, it was an outward-going, trading, innovative, mm. um, fantastic city, and I, I have to admit that my knowledge on Carthage is um, quite poor. I know a little bit about it, but not much, but I've always been intrigued by Carthage, and I yeah. think um, that would be... That would be that would be interesting as well. It's one of the original erased histories in a sense, isn't it? It's erased yeah. by the Romans. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I also think... Um, you, you know what? In, in all honesty, I mean, I think if I could have a, a guaranteed return ticket to the modern day, yeah. I would love to wander around ancient Pompeii. You know, funnily bit, enough, you know. funnily enough, I I was thinking a similar thing. You know, yeah. I, I, I might also be tempted by one of the the Greek states on Syracuse on um, Sicily. Yeah, yeah, um, because they are unbelievably prosperous. Yeah, they're Greek, mm -hmm. but they're they're not they're they're on the edge of the Greek world. Yeah. so they're open to Punic Carthaginian influences mm -hmm. to to all of the influences that are that are to be found in the ancient Mediterranean found in Sicily. Yeah. So I, I wonder whether I would go to one of them just yeah. just as a sort of a you know as a purely 
out of curiosity to experience as much as possible of the ancient world as I could. Yeah. No, I, I can see where you're coming from. Yeah. There. Yeah, that'd be amazing. And when? Well, probably I don't know, Hellenistic era, maybe. Um, Alexandria, I think, would be interesting. I'd, oh, love, yeah, I'd yeah. love to see that library. Yeah, Alexandria. Oh, that's a great one. Yeah, yeah Alexandria. I'd love to see the library. Yeah, well, you know, yes, Alexandria. Yeah. Yeah, or even a place like um, Ephesus or Pergamum, you know, in mm. uh, Asia Minor, I think they would have been, um, you know, great centers of learning and cultured. I think they, the. Uh, Alexandria is hard to beat, isn't it? Because of the great library. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. that's a really good point. Yeah. Um, yeah. But that, yeah, that, that would have been amazing, I think. Yeah. Okay, and final question then mm-hmm. um, from uh, Elise in year 13. Uh, another great question from her, friend of the show. Is Britain Greece to America's Rome? I mean, this is a separate podcast, isn't it? Oh, I mean, there's a whole thing to talk about. You could talk for hours about this. Um, I don't even know where to start. Well, I I made a few notes about this question. Okay. Um, I'm just going to read through my bullet points. Sure, go ahead. I'm curious about this, yeah. I wrote, post-colonial anxiety formulation to help British elite cope. Mm -hmm. I wrote, uh, American self-conscious identification with Republican Rome. Yeah. The Senate. Mm-hmm. I mean, for example. Yeah. British neuroticism about influence over America. Mm-hmm. I think all of these are parallels, are valid parallels between Greece and Rome. I think that, yeah. You no, know, that's so, true. you know, yeah. Greece is no longer a power, so it has post colonial anxiety. Mm-hmm. And they, they told themselves that they had influence over mm-hmm. the Romans to yeah. help them cope in the same way the British did. Yeah, exactly. You know, right. the, yeah. The, the, the Romans self consciously identified with Greece. Yeah. In the same way that the Americans self consciously identified with Rome. Mm-hmm. British uh, neuroticism about influence over America, the Greeks definitely had. There was definitely neuroticism about how much influence each had over the other mm-hmm. on both sides. Yeah. Um, the baddies are often British in America. And well, the baddies yeah, yeah, yeah. the baddies are often Greek in, in Roman literature. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, think about Sinon uh, in the Aeneid. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, they antagonistic but ultimately identify as fraternal civilized peoples set apart from barbarian others i think yeah i think that might be a particular difference i mean i think the way that americans view the brits now is probably not the same way that the romans would have viewed the greeks you know at the height of their empire no but the british and the americans do have this sense don't they that they are fraternal even Mm -hmm. though we're very different Mm-hmm. Or maybe this is just a British self-delusion. Maybe the Americans don't think this. But, <laughs> well, but, I mean, but, I, did, I did grow up in America, you know. Yeah, you did. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, mean, I do yeah. have. Um, yeah, I mean, the way that the the way that the Yanks view the Brits is very almost. Uh, it's at times it seems a bit of a love-hate relationship. The yeah. America, the Americans love the Brits, but the Brits aren't so keen on the but Americans. But that's, that's just yeah. like the Romans and the Greeks. Well, no, but the but the Romans. Yeah, I mean, to an extent, I know what you mean. I think the Romans had such reverence for the Greeks, but they loved making fun of the Greeks, yeah. and they loved um, um, cha- you know changing what the Greeks gave them and making it Roman. It's just like know? American Britain, isn't it? We love making fun of each other. We love kind of mm. changing what we what we produce into our own sort of. Mm-hmm. Um, vocabulary and, yeah. and that kind of thing. Yeah. Common language between Britain and America. Yeah, but it's the thing that divides us as well, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Because the, the, the Romans and the Greeks, in a sense, did have a common language because everyone spoke Greek. Yes. Um, well, 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 if, yeah. well, if you were educated. Yeah. If you were educated, you spoke yeah. Greek. But, uh, but obviously, 
It's a slight difference there. Much yeah. food for thought there, Mr. Feeney. Yeah, perhaps we can come back to that question in a future podcast. It's yeah. uh, it's a brilliant, brilliant question. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and, and lots to discuss. Well, yeah. guys, um, I hope you've enjoyed uh, this second episode. We've, we've gone on a little longer. Um, and hopefully that hasn't been too tedious for you. We have had a great time Absolutely, um, recording yeah. this. Mr. Feeney, thank you so much for your wonderful insights. Um, mm. No, and yours. Thank you very much, Mr. Burns. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. See you guys next time. Bye-bye. See you later.